1: Miss the show, no problems. On point and on our podcast. London City Council denies small businesses a new tax break. But the bigger picture here why aren't all small businesses in this country getting one since they were forced to close? It's not like they chose to, they had to. We'll talk about a new environmental study that says we're never going to meet targets and we're hurting those who can least afford it with this game of smoke and mirrors. Why the study says we'd be doing better doing nothing at all. And what is the expectation of our new Governor General with Indigenous groups? Her job is ceremonial, but will Mary Simon be more political than Governor Generals of the past? Let's get talking.
2: Please allow me to introduce
3: myself. I'm a man of wealth and t-
2: This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. With a 28-day interval needed between doses and 14 days to follow up uh, to build full immunity, today is the last day to get your COVID-19 shot in order to be fully immunized in time for a return to school on September 7th. It's 42 days away.
1: There you go. A lot of parents going to be in the dark about that little announcement because no one in charge is t- telling them. Alex Pearson with you on this dreary, soppy, soaky, kind of wet Tuesday, July 27th. Good to have you along for the ride. So here we are, 42 days as of today until the start of the school year, assuming it starts September 7th. And here we are with very little clarity on what the school year will look like. I mean, the premier says kids are going to be back in class even if it means driving the bus himself, which is cute, but not really helpful because what parents actually need right now is a vision, clarity, a plan, stability. We need to know will kids be back in class every day? Will there be a split in class and virtual learning? Will there be extracurricular activities? Are kids still be in cohorts? Will they have to mask? No clue. The only information we have is that there will be a different rule for vaccinated and non-vaccinated kids. Yeah, that was the news today. And if you don't know it, well, today's your last day for kids 12 and over to get their first shot in time to be fully vaccinated for the school year. And I'm going to go on a limb here and say I bet a majority of kids and parents out there have no clue about this deadline because it's barely been talked about. Barely been talked about. Where have the warnings been? Why has this not been talked about more? Where is the education minister with this message? Because it now looks like a lot of kids may miss out because, as we say in the news business, the lead got buried. But what's the plan? That's what we want to know. What's the plan if cases go up as they are expected to do? Will will we be shutting down schools again? I don't know. And what about the plan to getting kids caught up on more than a year and a half of lost education? Where's that conversation? Is the plan actually just to push kids through, be damned if they have a grasp on the curriculum or not? Because I can tell you, they don't. And we should not be okay just pushing them through. So is there any plan that this school year will be structured to catch these kids up properly? Who knows? Not parents, that's for sure. We're now 16 months into this thing, and it seems no one in charge is taking charge, which is a a running theme of this pandemic. By now, there's no reason we shouldn't have a plan A, B, or a plan C of what kids and parents can expect moving forward, because we know how this virus works. We also know it's not going away. So as far as I'm concerned, there's no good excuse, while we're still waiting to hear from those in charge, what living with this virus looks like. And the Premier's been asked a couple of times if future lockdowns are still part of the plan, and he gave an answer, but it was not a clear no, which leaves these lockdowns a threat kind of hanging over our head. Meanwhile, what's the province's biggest school board focusing on right now? Renaming schools. Oh, yes. I got an email. It was directed to staff of the Toronto Board, and it lays out in one tidy, neat little paragraph, quote, "...a volunteer group will be engaging in establishing a framework to lead the renaming of TDSB locations and schools. This process is occurring at a time when there's a broader societal shift towards honouring the importance of naming spaces." That represent Indigenous or Black leaders or other racialized leaders, and its association to the land and Indigenous histories. End quote. So the Toronto District School Board's not really focusing on that plan to properly catch up kids on you know kids on the curriculum they missed, and we know that they haven't bothered to track which teachers have been fully vaccinated or not. But hey, at least we're not going to have names of schools. That triggers students. I mean, those are the priorities. So if you're wondering, you know, why are we still dealing with so many unknowns? It's because those in charge are too busy waiting to get caught off guard again. Or they're waiting until the long weekend so they can dump out all this news and the details and let us sort out the mess. At this point, it's anyone's guess But we were told we'd have a back-to-school plan by end of July, so that leaves Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday when no one's paying attention. There you go. So we'll wait, I guess, to see what we uh, get. But uh, again, one of the biggest failures, if if there are now going to be two rules for vaccinated and non-vaccinated kids, you might want to message that. Tell parents, hey... By July 27th, if you haven't gotten your first shot, you're not going to be able to get your second shot in time for school. That message has not been heard. I I hadn't heard of it, and I work in the news. It's crazy. Educate people. Put out information. If they choose not to do it, that's their fault. But an awful lot of people aren't going to know about that and will be caught off guard by that. London's city councils voted unanimously against giving small businesses a tax break because they see it as a tax shift rather than a break. And recently the province gave municipalities the power to create a new small business tax class, which would basically uh, separate small business from being lumped in with industrial, commercial, residential, and agricultural classes. And had the city of London done this and voted for it, small businesses in its own class – their tax bill would drop by 35%. That's a lot of savings. But the mayor felt it wasn't fair because it would shift the burden elsewhere instead of saying, oh, gee, maybe we can do that and find ways to reduce spending. Instead, no, they're not going to give them a break. But I've been long wondering since this pandemic started why all small businesses aren't getting a tax break in their municipalities. They've been hit worse than any sector during this shutdown of more than 16 months without any say. And so if the government takes away someone's ability to make a living, why aren't these businesses being given a tax break as part of the support measures? Chris Sims is a B.C. director of Canadian Taxpayers Federation. She joins us now. I mean, Chris, it seems like an obvious, no?
0: Yeah, it is an obvious. And what's really disappointing is we get this answer routinely from local governments across Canada, unfortunately, is they throw their hands in the air and they say, well, there's nothing we can do but not give tax cuts to small businesses who are struggling well have they taken a really long hard look line by line at their spending how much Mm -hmm. of a pay cut have they taken at city hall and for city employees if the answer is none they need to start answering those tough questions i think last i checked the city of london has about 500 people on the sunshine list so that means that's making a lot grand yeah that is a lot so a lot of people make a hundred grand there
1: yeah, I mean, one thing this uh, pandemic has really shown is the disparity between the private and the public sector. And, and you know, I, I drive around the city of Toronto and I see all these businesses boarded up, shut down. They've had to pay taxes the entire t- time, not not just... You know, the regular taxes, GST, all that stuff that you pay, um, you know, payroll taxes. But they've had to pay land tax. They've had to pay everything. And I'm thinking, why hasn't any level of government, certainly the municipal government, which could save them a lot of money, say, you know what, we're not going to collect this year because you haven't been open?
0: Yes, exactly. And there isn't this big push to do more with less. Uh, You and I remember, of course, when we had the the major recessions and the deficit fighting that was happening under Paul Martin, a lot of tough choices had to be made then. But they're not doing that now, especially, it seems, at the local level. So it seems really unfair to tell these small businesses, especially the ones that haven't been able to be open, it's no fault of their own, sorry, you get no tax cut. that's not okay.
1: No, but it's puzzling, because it's not even an issue. And I think, you know, um, it, everything's had to change in the last sixteen months. We still have you know areas of this country you know in Ontario, we're still in restrictions, and the premier has not said anything about lifting those restrictions. We've got small businesses that haven't been able to qualify or get any help from the federal programs. and so you know, they've been begging, borrowing, and stealing from their own savings to make it through this and, and no one's really giving them the help they need. and I just think the tax break would be just a the easiest thing that could be done.
0: Yeah, this should be a no-brainer, and it should be automatic. They should have immediately seen how low they could drop their small business tax rates and for how long. It shouldn't be that we've spent too much time even thinking about this. I think that was the quote in the comment I saw from the mayor's office. That's mm-hmm. not responsive. That's not accountable government. Uh, folks in London, if they like their small businesses, their independent small businesses, they should be giving the mayor and his staff a phone call and filling their ears firmly but politely because it's their job to study these things and to make good policy because this really affects people. Small businesses aren't just some pop-up shop that sits there. Those are human beings with families and
1: and responsibilities. I know no no one actually qualifies it. A lot of people, I think, just say, well, the business is gone. Behind that business, behind that lease sign is a family that's probably had to sell their house if the bank didn't take it given up everything, relocated, having to start over. So there's a real human toll to this this thing. But, you know, when you think about the municipalities right across this country, and I'll focus, you know, just on Ontario because that's where we are. I mean, once mm-hmm. a business is gone, the the municipal and, and provincial and federal levels aren't going to get anything at all. And so you think to yourself, well, isn't it better to take a short hit um, from the small businesses and help them out to make sure that they stay to pay their pay their tax bill the next year?
0: Yes, exactly. It's like, you know, you're taking milk from a cow, right? Say, say your local government. You're getting a certain amount of milk from a cow. So it dries up a little bit, but you're still getting some. Isn't it better to keep that cow alive rather than just uh-huh. letting it die and get nothing from it? This makes no sense. Um, here in British Columbia, there are different jurisdictions, obviously, that have done different things. But I'll give you an example. In Port Coquitlam, they turned around mm-hmm. and said, listen, by default, if you are a restaurant, you're allowed to have a patio. Go. Like, go. You don't need to send in a permit. If there's a problem, then people can complain. But as of right now, you will by default be permitted a patio. That saves people weeks of waiting, tons of red tape. They didn't need to have fees paid. That's just common sense. Apparently, even some local employees who were already being paid, so it didn't cost them more, they're already getting salaries, were even sent and deployed to help these businesses move these pylons around and put these planks mm. down on the sidewalk. That's the kind of thinking and innovation that we need from local government along with tax relief.
1: Yeah. I mean, Toronto's done a pretty good job creating, you know, taking a lane away of traffic and giving it to the restaurants and the bars so that they can put some tables out and expand their their serving area. Uh, But the businesses still have to pay for that cost of setting that up. But again, at, at just the local basic level of saying on your land taxes this year, on your yearly land taxes... I don't know how in good conscience they can take the money, given it wasn't a choice for these guys and these these small business owners to shut down. They had no
0: choice. Otherwise, they would have stayed open. Exactly. It's through no fault of their own that this hit them. And then the government managed, for good or ill, as best they could, depending on where you come down on that issue, this was not the business's fault. And so, yeah, at the bare minimum, they should be getting a big tax break. And the idea, that that's what really struck me. The the quote that was in the news about this, of them not even considering it, like rejecting it out of hand as if it were a waste of their time to consider giving a 35% tax break to these small businesses, that's not acceptable. Uh, These folks are not kings and queens that get to rule with impunity. They are elected representatives and their people who voted for them should be picking up the phone.
1: But to your point, um, it doesn't seem to be a conversation because there's such a distortion between public and and private sectors that I think that those working in government jobs have had it so good, they don't see the need for the conversation. And they make up a huge, huge part of the workforce.
0: It is a big chunk of the workforce. And unfortunately, it's a constant disconnect. I was reading a study uh, by SecondStreet.org, it's a think tank here in Canada, and for in Alberta, for example, the last time that government employees had received any form of a real pay cut was back when Ralph Klein was in power. I think it was 1992 or 93. There are MLAs and MPs who are younger than that. They weren't alive the last time that they saw a significant portion of government get any form of a of a wage rollback. Most of us in the private sector. <laughs> Got pay cuts and wage rollbacks, yeah. and they they suffered and they sacrificed. Most folks in government did not, so it's the least they can ask for is to to get a tax cut in this case. And,
1: and yet, um, surprisingly, most provincial premiers are conservatives, and you would think that they would have gone for that, but you always get the electoral process getting in the way of, well, can I get the vote in the next election? And so they didn't trim or cut anything in the public service, and I, and, and that was not even a conversation to be had.
0: Yeah, well, they, we need to have a bit of a culture change here, and we need to go back to that time when we were really big tax fighters in the early 90s, the same way that we were going after deficit spending. Now that we're hopefully hopefully, Knockwood wood, mm. seeing the end of this COVID tunnel of hell, citizens, average working people, need to bring this into themselves and make it part of their voting culture. When they see MPs yeah. or potential politicians on their doorsteps, it doesn't matter if it's local, provincial, or federal, they need to say, what are you going to do about the debt? Both city, because they're allowed to spend debt on the, on the uh, capital side. They're not allowed to run deficits, technically, on the operating budget, of course. But if you look at their capital spending, they are plummeting into debt, and they're growing yeah. and growing and growing when it comes to payrolls. Like I said, I think around 500 people or so are on the Sunshine List just in the city of London itself, where they're denying yeah. these people the tax cut.
1: Yeah, the Sunshine List is the uh, is the one kind of sober reminder of of just the imbalance that has been created, and it's not like we. Uh, it's not like, like I'm saying fire people. No one wants to be fired, but everyone should, if we're all in this together, Chris, everyone should feel their pain. The private sector has, so like take a 10% hit to your, or 5% hit hit to your check, do your part, or give tax breaks to small businesses in their own category for, for not a, not ever, just a year, two years, let them get back on their feet.
0: Exactly. Because then you'll have a healthy and robust commercial sector and a very appreciative tax base. It works both ways. It should.
1: It's not right now, though. Nonetheless, appreciate the conversation. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Chris Sims is with the BC Director, where she's the Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. So no is the answer on that vote. Remember that next time you go to the voting. Families have a lot going on. Welcome back to the show. So in November, the United Nations will hold yet another climate summit, this time in Scotland, which means, of course, thousands of uh, thousands of experts and world leaders will all hop on their very fuel laden planes and go to something that could just as easily be held online like it was last year. And of course, none of these guys lead by example and it's not their strong hand, so they'll be flying all over the world um, and still at the same time telling us that the world's going to end in 12 years. But what will be accomplished? Nothing. I mean, we'll get more unachievable goals that won't be reached, and will actually go after uh, and doesn't actually go after these countries who are creating much of the problems. And according to the latest study by Fraser Institute, those who are crafting these climate policies, you know, trying to achieve the UN's targets of limiting global temperatures from increasing to 1.5% are actually doing more harm than economic and social costs uh, do for good. So they suggest that we're better off doing nothing at all. Ross McKittrick is a Canadian economist specializing in environmental economics and policy analysis at the University of Guelph, but he also co-authored this report for the Fraser Institute. He joins us now. Good to have you.
2: Hi, Alex. Thanks for calling.
1: Right now, we are so far behind, you know, the fantastical goals of the UN of reducing emissions by 45% below 2010 targets. Now we're expected to do this within nine years. I mean, people got a taste of what life would be like in the pandemic. And to achieve this, we would have to do something far, far, far more draconian.
2: Yeah. um, And I think that's important for people to realize when uh, numbers get tossed around like net zero and, um, even meeting the Paris targets. um, They're all being pushed under this umbrella of all these countries have embraced a target of limiting warming to one and a half degrees above pre-industrial levels, which pretty much means, um, according to the models that you're using, you have to get global emissions down basically to net zero within the next couple of decades. And... um, the report that they all cite, there's a report from the IPCC, the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, um, which was a report about what would happen with one and a half degrees warming. It said right at the beginning, they're not doing a cost benefit analysis. Yeah. All they were doing. Yeah, how does that work? Was, yeah, they were just talking about, well, what would be the difference between two degrees warming and one and a half degrees warming? And most of the report just says, not surprisingly, two is larger than 1.5, and You'd have more effects with two degrees versus 1.5 degrees. But they didn't do the cost benefit analysis. So other people have done it. And there's a large economics literature that's looked at optimal policy responses to the climate issue. And one of the best known names in that is William Nordhaus. He won a Nobel Prize the same weekend that the IPCC report came out. Uh, William Nordhaus was given the Nobel Prize for his work on climate economics a lot of the media coverage mentioned that, and then they stopped. What they didn't look at was his own work said um, the optimal amount of warming, if the models are correct, would actually be a lot more than 1.5. In other words, it would cost way too much to get down to one and a 1.5 degree uh, target. It would cost so much, we'd be better off to do nothing at all than to try to hit a target like that. Now, his optimal policy was to do something, just do the least cost policies and don't try to stop the developing countries from growing and, and don't try to stop our own economies from growing, but just do the least cost emission reductions. Otherwise, they'll adapt to the warming. So our report really goes into this and explains that, you know, the economics literature does not support this one and a half to target. It does not support the net zero target. That's that is not mainstream thinking. And yet all the extremists out there Keep talking as if science and academia is on their side when that's not the case at all.
1: Yeah, I mean, right now Canada is at $40 a ton, um, and and people are already complaining about expensive gas and heating costs. By 2030, we're expected to pay $170 a ton. But when you actually look at the numbers thrown around by the United Nations to achieve these goals – we would literally buy 2100 which I will thankfully be long gone, you'd have to pay tens of thousands of dollars per ton. I mean, it's just not achievable for anybody.
2: Yeah, it's just bizarre that they talk in those terms. And, uh, to take our economy, uh, to get to net zero essentially means deindustrialized. It means taking our economy back to the early 1800s as far as the standard of living and – um, the the environmental benefits of doing that would be minuscule compared to the costs. And um, again, when we look at where does this reasoning come from, people, one way or the other, they always point back to that IPCC special report on one and a half degrees. And it says right at the beginning, they're not in a position to recommend uh, this target. They're just talking about what... Uh, what some of their modeling work said that target would look like. And um, so you've, you've mentioned that we're not on track to achieve our Paris targets, and it's like the Kyoto story when 20 years ago we saw in the Kyoto Protocol with no plan to achieve those targets, and then that turned out not to work, and we couldn't do it. We're going to find the same thing here. Um, I worry this time, though, that the government is really going to inflict a lot more costs on the economy until we learn the hard way that these policies are not well thought out and don't make sense from an economic point of view.
1: Yes, but they play well in the election, and so you get a bunch of politicians spewing out a bunch of gobbledygook that doesn't add up, but no one seems to care. It's the crisis, it's what they want to talk about, and and therefore... You know, it's what we will end up spending 90% of our time come this election talking about, you know, policies that don't actually make a difference but do hurt everyday people. And, you know, science is not settled when when, when you actually talk about this because we don't have a clue what the global temperature will be in 2100. Um, and the other conversation that no one has, Ross, is that China's responsible for more green gases than anybody else in the world every single year. And it's never confronted or told, change your habits. And so unless they do, why should the rest of us?
2: Yeah, China and India are embarking on a very aggressive expansion of their coal-fired power capacity, not only domestically, but China is built a whole network of coal-fired power plants throughout Africa and the developing world. And at one level, I I would say as an economist, good for them. They're developing, they're industrializing, that's what they need to do. What I worry about, though, is why are we forcing them to go to China to get their energy? Uh, China is an aggressive player that's essentially trying to recolonize or colonize um, those developing regions and turn them into vassal states under the control of, of the Beijing government. Why isn't Canada out there? selling oil and natural gas and, and our energy products, you know, we can't get our energy to a coast because everybody in Canada wants to virtue signal and say, we're not going to be in that business. Well, fine. But as long as we stand on the sidelines, it's, um, dictatorships that are filling the gap. And so it, um, it's making life even worse for people in the developing countries who are going to get the energy one way or the other. They'd be a lot better off if they got it from us.
1: Yeah. Meanwhile, um, you know, to suggest do nothing at all will make people, people's hair light on fire. But again, if it's not moving the ball forward, you got to start asking yourself, you know, why are we doing mm. this and why are we hurting, um, you know, those who can least afford to be hurt? Interesting numbers. Ross, I always appreciate your insight into these things, and I thank you for your time. Thanks, Alex. Right. Thank you. That is Ross McKittrick, who uh, specializes in environmental economics and uh, co-authored this report for the Fraser Institute.:
0: People in Rossy Narrows are suffering from mercury poisoning. You committed to addressing this problem. Thank
2: you for being here. You Thank you very much for
1: your donation tonight. I really appreciate it <laughs> <laughs> He's so funny. Remember that? Yes. That would be one Prime Minister Trudeau mocking Indigenous protesters from Narrows who came to Toronto to a big Liberal fundraiser back in 2019, and they were demanding uh, that he fulfill his promise to get them clean drinking water. And of course, as you heard him there, he decided, let's make them the butt of his joke, which Liberal supporters in the room loved. I mean, nothing says progressive like mocking Indigenous people begging for water that's not poisonous, Right. Well, that was then, and here we are now, just weeks from an election, and all of a sudden, the Liberals are coughing up 90 million bucks for a care home that will be built to treat those poisoned by mercury that has been polluting the waters at Grassy Narrow, dating back to the 60s. Imagine how many decades we're talking. What has taken so long? Better late than never, I guess, right? That's the reasoning. Except when you read the the small print on this announcement, uh, the money doesn't arrive for another six years. Oh, yeah, it's also not a new announcement. Melissa Mubarki is a policy analyst and outreach coordinator, coordinator at the MacDonald-Laurier Institute. She's also a member of the Treaty 4 Nation in Saskatchewan. Good to have you back, Melissa. Thanks for having me back. When I saw this and tweeted it out, I thought, Really? I mean, this is pretty crass, unless I'm just that cynical, but this deal includes, just so our listeners understand, $68.9 million in a trust for operational services. It's to be spread out over 30 years. And um, Ottawa previously agreed to provide $19.5 million for construction costs for the facility. So, like, this is, to me, and I think should be to many others, as, as smoke and mirrors. It's definitely, um, it's,
3: it's a project that should have, Happened decades ago, uh, like you said earlier, it's been sixty years. Um, we're looking at three generations of an entire community that's been impacted by mercury, and you know they've had health issues. You know they've had scientists going into this community and evaluating what mercury does to people, and you know in addition to like neurological disorders, you're looking at um, you know problem standing, swallowing, just basic day-to-day tasks and why wasn't this addressed earlier and why wasn't this announcement this funding announcement done decades ago Um, you know I I just don't get the delay in projects like this especially when it comes to a person's health and it comes to a person's well-being like I mean this shouldn't be a political um, you know way to get votes this should be an ongoing process where we're helping people and that's not happening. And if this money does get to the communities in the next few years, that's going to be the bigger question because they come up with these big funding announcements and nothing happens quickly on reserves. And I've seen this firsthand. So, you know, this is definitely something to watch and this is definitely something that we should be following up on as Canadians because, you know, this is happening in our backyard. And these are people that are being affected health wise by this poisoning and it's not something that should be swept under the rug.
1: Well, it's not, and it's also not something that should have been joked about. And yet, uh, I was surprised that Justin Trudeau didn't take more heat for kind of laughing it off, you know, with those pre- protesters, because clean drinking water on reserves across this country was one of his biggest policy promises to reconciliation with the Indigenous people of this country, and and they have barely scratched the surface of having that, um, you know, process be met. Uh, so th- there's a failure here for them to deliver on. Um, Much of those promises, including the 94 recommendations that he swore that he would uh, implement uh, that were handed out by the United Nations, and only eight of them have been implemented. And so when you see this kind of funding announcement that really is about campaigning on the backs of Indigenous groups at a time as you well know, Melissa, where there's a lot of healing to be done, there's a lot of anger, and there's a lot of calls for justice. Uh, It it is crass, but again, I think people in this country, no matter what your background is, they want the government to fix these things. They don't want them to campaign, they want them fixed.
3: That's true, and I have many friends that are, um, you know, they're going to their MPs, and they're requesting follow-ups on, you know, the grass, not only the grassy narrows, um, you know, mercury poisoning, but there's also First Nations communities in their areas where when they went on to the boil water advisories, seen that they were on there. So they're asking their MPs, you know, what's happening with this community? And can you give us an update on when this will be fixed? And a lot of these communities, I, I mean, they were on the verge, like their water issue was on the verge of being fixed. And then all of a sudden, the funding stopped, and it was due to the pandemic. That's not an excuse. You know, like the, you, you don't have any excuses when it comes to water issues. Like every Canadian in this country deserves clean drinking water. And, you know, it shouldn't be something that our PM is mocking or making fun of because people's health are be, is being impacted. And I think the more we get this out there and the more messaging that, you know, we're relaying on to the non-Indigenous communities about these issues, I think the more progress we'll make going forward and this will no longer be a campaign you know, for political parties, it will be something that they have to do. Um, And I just, you know, we need to see progress. You know, I'm just so tired of promises and then these promises getting broken once again.
1: Yeah. And to your point on why the funding stopped, I mean, look, this is a federal promise, federal issue, and the federal government was not nearly as busy as the provinces in this pandemic. So there was no real excuse for them to stop the funding or this work, especially knowing that they were already behind in their policy promises. But you also point out that, you know, remediation for those poisoned by this water hasn't even gotten underway. So here you've got a government working to take reconciliation survivors, you know, residential school survivors to court. Um, They're trying to get reconciliation. Uh, They can't even bother to deal with that court issue, let alone compensate those poisoned by mercury. Well, when I looked at the last
3: stats on it, you know, only 14% of the people received compensation in Grassy Narrows. And, you know, that that's a very small number, you know, especially when you're having to deal with medical appointments and, you know, your life is is all about, you know, uh, the impacts it had on your health and being able to travel to these appointments. You know, a lot of these people, like, they're living on a minimum of $250 a month. Like, that yeah. can't even buy your basic groceries so they haven't been compensated, you know. And, and funding announcements announcements like this come out right before an election, and then they're forgot about. You know, I think if you're going to be voting for this party, you have to make sure that they live up to these promises, instead of it just yeah. being like you said, smoke and mirrors. Um, because this this is an impact to people, you know. And if you put yourself in in their shoes, you'll see the amount of suffering that's happening in these communities and maybe that will change your vote or maybe it will change the way you approach your mp you know we need to we need to start bringing change to these communities and it's not going to happen until we step up as canadians and as a collective
1: Let me switch gears here to talk about the um, appointment of Governor General Mary Simon, who was sworn in on Monday. Uh, You know, impressive woman. Um, She sees herself as a bridge builder. I don't agree with everything she talked about. She spoke about climate change being the biggest threat to the First Nations instead of issues like clean drinking water, um, like justice reforms or even, um, you know, foster care. I thought there were other issues she could cite. But what is the expectation, Melissa, in Indigenous communities across this country for her? Do they see her as, I mean, her job is ceremonial, but do they see her uh, being more political and getting more involved, or that she should?
3: I honestly thought the appointment was more for, to further the Crown-Indigenous relations and to start building on in trusting, you know, and and getting people, um, you know, bringing people on board with what the um, governments are proposing and to start building those relationships with First Nations communities. But, you know, when she starts off her speech with climate change, and like you said, there's so many pressing issues that she could have addressed, like, poverty on reserves um you look at um child and welfare you look at our jail systems where indigenous people are overrepresented start Mm -hmm. with any one of these start with the water issue yeah like climate change i i you know i was really disappointed in that because you know you you kind of have faith in the government that they're going to do the right thing for you and when this is what you're starting off with it's not a very you're not getting off on a very good foot like if you were hoping to build relationships with us that kind of went under the table with that announcement and you know it took the people issue aside and it pushed climate change in the forefront
1: and and I think a lot of people assume that um, you know the Indigenous community in this country are a monolith voice, and they are not. And so, is her appointment um, well received by and large, or are, are, is there a division um, of, of what people see uh, that she can deliver?
3: I think you know when she when it was first announced, you
1: know, like we all have that hope,
3: and so regardless yeah. if we're from you know Inuit or Inuit or Métis or First Nations, like regardless of our background, you know, we had that hope that you know relationships are going to start going in the right direction and the government is going to start listening to us. Um, But, you know, from the first day, it doesn't look like it's going that way, you know, so that this is where we're going to start seeing um, the pushback and saying, okay, well, what exactly is your role? Is it a political role or is it more of a role between Canada and the Queen? So if that's what the role is, then that's what you're focused on. You know, like We're starting to kind of see, um, you know, that hope fade and more disappointment come in. And it's like, okay, what is your job now? Like, we kind of had high expectations, but we're being let down. So what is the next step in all of this?
1: Well, she says her name translates to bossy little old lady, or bossy little lady. So we'll uh, we'll see if that was a hidden message to those in charge as to what she sees um, and what she will, uh, you know, do uh, with her appointment. Melissa, always a pleasure to speak with you. We'll have you on again. I appreciate the conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Thank you. That is Melissa Mavarki, who is uh, with the McDonnell Laurier Institute, also a member of the Tree Four Nation in Saskatchewan. So there is a different perspective on these issues. Thanks for listening. You can join us, of course, live Monday through Friday, starting 630 sharp here. I'm Alex Pearson on Point. This is Global News Radio.